Blog Talk Radio. This is Know It All. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Many thanks again to D.C. High School student Trayvon for the wonderful theme music. We aim to make you, our listeners, know-it-alls about education law, policy, and practice that affect you. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com slash know-it-all. I'm your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I'm a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity and public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Know It All is sponsored by The Root DC, part of the Washington Post family. The Root DC focuses on news for and about African Americans in the DC region. You can find episodes of Know It All in my blog posts after each show on my website and on the Root DC website at therootdc.com. This Saturday, I'm working with the Root DC and the Interactivity Foundation to sponsor a community discussion entitled LGBT Rights and Schools. We'll talk about lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender students and what they need as, from allies in the community. Please join us at the ARC at 3 p.m. on this Saturday, April 13th. On today's show, we're talking about the brain, specifically children's brains. The brain is a relatively small organ, but it is in complete control of every part of our being, and we probably understand only a very small fraction of all of its powers. On April 2nd, President Obama announced his proposal to spend $100 million for his brain initiative, Brain Research Through Advancing Innovative Neurotechnologies, The White House describes this as a bold new research effort to revolutionize our understanding of the human mind. I am so thrilled to have with me today Dr. Jessica Phillips-Silver. She is a cognitive scientist. Don't worry, I'll ask her what that means. A musician and a mommy. One of her many specialties is kid brains, and she'll help us understand what the President's Initiative means for children and students, and we'll talk in general about young minds, a kind of brain science 101. Good morning, Jessica. Welcome to Know It All. Good morning, Allison. Thank you for having me. Will you start by explaining what a cognitive scientist is? Sure. So a cognitive scientist is um, somebody who's trying to understand how cognition works, and cognition is a word for thinking. Um, And we really study everything from how information comes into the brain through all of the sensory organs from seeing and hearing and and smelling and tasting um, up to how we process that information, how we store memories, um, and how um, how the body that we live in and the world that we live in shapes the way we process information. Great. So you heard about the President's initiative, right, the Brain mm-hmm. Initiative. Right. What is... What does it mean to you? Well, I think that, uh, first of all, on a kind of a global cultural level, what the President Obama is um, suggesting is that we have a pro-science outlook 
with this administration, which I think is a really positive thing for our country um, because that suggests that we're looking towards progress towards the future and what science can do to help um, our country thrive and our um, help us understand and, and live our everyday lives better and more healthfully. Um, on in terms of uh, children's brain development and and um, really everybody's healthy brain functioning, I think some of his aims in this brain initiative are to really understand the the nature and origin of certain brain diseases. He mentions things like Alzheimer's and epilepsy and autism. Um, and he's looking to find ways to detect these types of problems early, as early in life as possible so that we can build interventions that really favor the um, the best possible outcome in these cases, and then and, and initiatives for understanding things like post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, what happens when our uh, soldiers and war veterans return from war, having suffered um, very strong experiences, and the the consequences that that those experiences can have on their brains. We need to better understand what their needs are um, and how to how to deal with those. And I think this extends to um, everyday people in their everyday lives as well, because if we think on the level of education, for example, the better we understand how the human brain works, the better we can meet, meet the needs of our children from the earliest days of their development right through their education and into their adult lives. I think it's, I think it's really important um, you know, when I heard about it, I was thinking about it from an advocate's perspective about, you know, how research can really support advocacy. And, um, you know, advocates have been talking about um, social-emotional learning and um, child development and and really wanting to make sure that educators are familiar with um, these kinds of things and children so that <clears throat> educators kind of know what to expect and can predict child behavior given certain triggers. Um, so I I was very excited about it from an, an advocate's perspective, and I think yes. it really will give several opportunities for collaboration, hopefully, between researchers and advocates and community members and others um, yeah. to think about strategies that will work to support children and educators as well. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the benefits of an initiative like this is it really is going to encourage some crosstalk between those domains. So the scientists need to take uh, more responsibility for communicating uh, that which we do know about the brain and development um, into the more public sphere. Um, and the government needs to take responsibility for applying what we know from brain science to things like education and um, child-rearing and and um, and uh, mental health and things like that. And the public needs to demand that we do that. And and needs to understand what questions to ask, mm -hmm. you know, and and how what exactly what they are demanding. Right. Um, a lot of the the conversation that we've heard around this initiative has been about brain mapping and mm -hmm. mapping of the brain. What is brain mapping? Well, brain mapping is kind of a general term for understanding um, basically how um, how the the brain as an entire organ is somewhat broken down into um, 
sections or networks that are responsible for certain types of processing. So just to give you one example, um, if you put your hand at the um, the nape of your neck and you feel the little bulge at the back of your skull, inside there is the occipital lobe, and the occipital lobe is responsible for processing visual information and for seeing. Um, so we know that our seeing is mapped up, mapped onto that region of our brain. And when you look at other types of functioning, whether it's hearing or language or memory or emotion, those can be sort of uh, identified onto certain regions of the brain or in some cases extensive networks that sort of um, wire throughout the brain and connect different areas and enable us to function the way we do. So brain mapping in general um, means really understanding how the organ is um, can break down in, into its component parts, but then importantly, how those component parts relate to each other, connect to each other, get wired up with each other for in, in early development, for example, or uh, reorganize or recover after a brain injury um, or a disease and and function in that way. So that's the, those are the the aims of understanding brain mapping. Mm-hmm. And when we think about brain mapping and kind of how different parts of the brain link with other parts of the brain, um, how does that fit within child development? So, you know, for instance, you know, we've heard a lot about um, suspensions and expulsions and arrests of students out of school, especially students of color, LGBTQ students and students with disabilities. And a lot of times students are being punished for what would seem to be um, developmentally appropriate behavior. So mm-hmm. things like, you know, talking to their friends or um, talking back to a teacher or, um, you know, getting into a fight, sometimes reluctantly because they're egged on by their peers. Mm-hmm. You know, can you talk about what what educators and parents need to understand about children's brain development and specifically how the brain develops over time, even into the adult years? Well, I think um, uh, the brain does, as you say, take a long time to development. So it's not sort of a finished product at a certain age, but there are kind of critical periods um, for for certain types of development. Um, and I think one of the, one of the big things that we are learning from from neuroscience research is has to do with the development of the front part of the brain. So before I asked you to put your hand on the back of your head and sort of feel where your occipital lobe is, now I would ask you to put your hand over your uh, forehead, and inside your forehead we have a large uh, cortex, a prefrontal cortex, or frontal cortex. And the frontal lobe is... Um, the part of the brain that is evolutionarily newer. So we have developed a larger frontal lobe than um, our um, evolutionary ancestors had. And it's responsible for a lot of our higher-order thinking, reasoning, uh, behavior, uh, self-regulation, and things like that. And that part of the brain uh, is one area that really takes a very long time to develop, um, even throughout childhood and into adolescence. And I think that as one of the kind of uh, main principles that is coming out of neuroscience research is that 
the development of that part of the brain is what enables us to um, to monitor ourselves, to regulate ourselves, to sort of go from maybe more childish, impulsive behavior to uh, behavior that is a little bit more under self-control and self-regulation. And this this attribute can vary in the population. Um, so some people may display higher or lower degrees of, of self-control. Um, and depending on the context, higher or lower degrees of self-control or inhibition can be um, desirable or, or less desirable. But when you think about things like um, behavior in the school and um, um, sort of following rules and cooperating and um, behaving according to convention, I think one of the things that parents and teachers uh, need to be aware of is that children need support and nurturing um, so that that brain system, that network that's responsible for those executive functions can develop properly, can be strong, and the child really learns to behave and get along in the world. Um, so the, the home environment and the school environment, I think, are it's in many ways primarily responsible for encouraging and supporting that kind of development. And I think that the more that parents and teachers and administrators and um, policymakers uh, understand what what science can tell us about that, maybe... We, the better we can sort of enhance our programs. Um, I mean, everything from parenting in everyday life um, to, you know, school policies to really make sure that we're not just being punitive when children act out, um, but that, you know, we're really providing as much support as we possibly can for children to learn how to best get along in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You and I have talked some about... Um you know the notion of of kind of in in France parenting in France and how different it is um and even that the concept of discipline isn't something that um French parents and I'm of course over generalizing I'm sure mm-hmm. but um isn't something that that French parents um utilize it's not a term or a concept that they use they use the concept of learning and teaching and mm-hmm. nurturing in every area. So, mm-hmm. you know, not just kind of ABCs, but also, it, you know, when it's time to sit still, this is how you do that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and and that, I think, is, is very much related to what you're talking about in terms of the self-control that develops over time in our brains mm-hmm. um, and even into, you know, our 20s. Right. Yeah, I think that... Um for me as a parent, uh, being able to sort of observe or read about models from cultures other than our own has been really enlightening and informative um, in terms of understanding how my own child is developing. And the idea, this exists in French culture and in in many others as well, the idea that, um, that when we sort of, that, when we teach our children how to behave or you know help them get through periods of difficulty or tension 
um, in order to find balance and find self-control. Um, the idea that that's an educational process is key. For me, being a parent of a young child, there are times when I might feel frustration thinking um, that my child knows the rules, knows how to behave, why is she acting out? But when I remember that this is a constant educational process and that self-control, self-regulation, and self-expression included, and we're not just talking about stifling, we're talking about uh, revealing and expressing as well, but in appropriate ways, um, these are skills that develop in the young children, and they practice these skills day in and day out. And sometimes there's a large degree of repetition that's required for them to solidify those skills. Just like if we're learning an instrument, or like a guitar or a piano, and we have to practice the same drills over and over, day in, day out, for hours and hours on end, it can seem very tedious. But without that practice, those skills don't strengthen. So what we really need to, um, what I have found useful is the concept that children, um, uh, I mean, children need limits. Um, children need safety. They need um, boundaries. Um, but but we, we have to remember every day <laughs> that they are building their skills and we we support them, we help them, we remind them. And, um, and the idea, the concept, sometimes in our culture, the concept of discipline has kind of kind of a connotation of of, um, of, uh, of something punitive, you know, really punishment. And there are certainly um, there may be times where um, some kind of punitive action is required. But but to think of the concept of discipline as formation, education, training is also useful. And then we have sort of a multifaceted uh, concept that takes on a more of a positive light and really an empowering light <laughs> because parenting very young children can be frustrating. And, um, you know, to feel empowered, to feel, to remind ourselves, just like with practicing music, you know, every day we have to go back to the basics and, this really enables us to see our children growing and to feel to feel part of that, um, to feel that we're supporting it um, and not being worn down by it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, I, you know, I think a lot of parenting is instinctual, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that um, we have to learn to tune in to our, to our instincts that mm-hmm. are sometimes running contrary to what the messages are that we are receiving. Um, about how to parent in this society, you know. Um, and um, I think one of the instincts that many parents have is that, you know, I want I want music and art for my kid, right? You know, I, I want that without necessarily understanding why they want that. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of your specialties is music and the brain, and you are a musician and a visual artist, too, how do you incorporate music and art as a parent raising your daughter, and more importantly, why? Um, well, I, I, I think that music and art um, represent some of the ultimate human experiences. Um, all of us have them, whether we consider ourselves musicians or not. It's 
you can arguably say that we're all musicians because if you look historically and across the world, um, most people communally, you know, are in, in groups and cultures are making music. And I think for me, one of the key um, things is that to remember is that music and art um, can be part of everyday life. So I I try to embrace that for my self and and many people do if even if nothing more than having their iPods handy um but when it comes to raising children i think in order to to build those um you know coming back to the brain <laughs> to build mm-hmm. and strengthen the brain you know networks that are sort of responsible for for really skillful um artistic uh expression we uh we need to do it we need to make it and um when you're raising a little child that may require nothing more than going to the kitchen and pulling out all the pots and pans and utensils <laughs> and and creating a drum circle out of them. I don't think it requires necessarily very special resources. Um, and in, in much of the world, music is something that sort of occurs very spontaneously on a daily basis um, and in in the context of... of uh, of daily rituals and and self care and and things like that. In our culture, it tends to be a little bit more restricted to um, special environments like the concert hall or clubs or um, you know you may you may see a little less of spontaneous music happening on the streets of America than in some other places in the world. Although you do see it, and um, when we see it, we we want to stop and, and embrace it. Um, but coming back to children, I think that um, on the one hand we want to give them the maximum, you know, opportunity to develop tools of self-expression and and artistic creation. And I think we see with young children that it comes very naturally to them. So, for example, <laughs> when if you watch um, very young infants, um, when music comes on they will start dancing. I mean, even infants, you know, as young as just just six months of age will start bouncing up and down spontaneously and a huge smile will spread across their faces. And, and some people in the field of music neuroscience are actually measuring that body motion as one way to tap into how the children's brains are processing the music because they are responding intensely to it. And they will respond, for example, very young infants will respond um, with rhythmic body motion more in 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 the context of music than they will in the context of listening to a conversation. So music is tapping into the very young brain and they basically their little bodies are kind of saying to to us I want to do this, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. if I think that with with um music and and art the same thing goes for painting. I mean kids love nothing more than to jump into a pile of finger paints and see where <laughs> how far they can spread it, you know? And the, the when my daughter paints, you know, there's no edge to the canvas. In my yeah. my adult mind and all my limitations, I think the canvas stops here and that's where the paint stops, not for her. It goes onto yeah, the walls yeah. and it goes onto her and it goes onto me. And you know what? That's that's just fine because because she's discovering what, you know, the the extent of what she can produce, and um, and so you know, I for for raising young children, I really think that it doesn't. We don't need to pressure ourselves to do much more than that in the beginning, and then I think there are opportunities down the line for um, 
for raising the bar a little bit. You know, some people want to put their children in Suzuki training, which is a, a Japanese tradition of, of um, music training that starts with training the ear and then learning to play instruments like the violin or piano by ear. Um, and that starts at a very young age. It starts at three. Um, and um, that's an example of how parents can, um, if they see sort of a, a, dis, a certain disposition in their child, you know, if the child is really drawn to music, there are ways then to open up doors for their child to take that as far as they can. And I think if we follow, our children gravitate towards what, what they are kind of naturally passionate about. And if we're watching <laughs> and we catch it, you know, we can follow those inclinations and see where they where they lead. Right, right. Um, I, I think, you know, that that is or following children's inclinations I think is certainly one uh very important or probably the most important tenet of Montessori education mm-hmm. um and of what Maria Montessori intended to do um with children uh you know my children are are Montessori um children and mm-hmm. um i am not you know i i didn't mm-hmm. i went to a, a traditional public school and i sat in my desk every day and listened to mm-hmm. the, the teacher and then spat back what was <laughs> what had mm-hmm. been given to me um and so it's a very it was a very novel concept um that I was somewhat uncomfortable with in the beginning mm-hmm. um, to say, you know, allow the child to lead mm-hmm. and um, the, the teacher is more of a guide than a teacher um, and is guiding in every area. So, you know, we talked about behavior being just kind of another area that children need help learning and developing mm-hmm. in. Um, and and Montessori really does that. And, I, you know, I, I am a a complete convert to the Montessori mm-hmm. way, um, mm-hmm. having seen my children really develop this sense of confidence and, um, uh, you know, just a sense of self that um, I think will really suit them well later, but, but you know, does them well now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's amazing. And you've begun to research Maria, Maria Montessori and Montessori instruction for children mm-hmm. from a, a cognitive neuroscience perspective. Will you mm-hmm. talk about what Montessori is and what you have found? Yeah, so um so I think you've you've sort of hit upon one of the key principles of Montessori which is that the 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 children are the leaders, they lead themselves and the teacher is a guide. And Dr. Montessori said that the child will reveal himself, reveal herself. And we I think the role of the parent and the teacher um, is to um, allow freedom within limits, limits of respect and safety um, and, you know, um, boundaries that that are required in, in terms of being able to work and cooperate in a group, but allowing freedom to for a child to follow his or her own um, directives and passions and uh, develop him or herself. And what is what what we see when we watch little children is that they they do develop themselves. They their brains are forming themselves. And as much as um, 
we parents sometimes like to take a whole lot of credit <laughs> for our children's <laughs> strengths. <laughs> Um, I'm I'm one of them. Uh, I, I I obsess over every little detail, and I like to you know overanalyze every little thing, and then lie lie in bed awake at nights thinking I should have done something better. And and that's that's we we play in a very important role in shaping and guiding our children as well. But I think what we see when we watch children is that they they really do develop themselves and. You know, you can see this especially when you look at it, uh, at children who maybe come from an environment that um, where, because of certain circumstances, they don't have uh, parents around who are able to attend to every little detail or uh, hyper, you know, focus on every little thing. Th- these children will will show the same level, natural level of enthusiasm for exploring the world. Um, and learning as any other child. And so it's there from the beginning. The child wants to learn, discover, do. Um, they get frustrated when we uh, when we um, don't let them do for themselves. Sometimes temper tantrums will occur because we're trying to quickly get them ready and, and out the door onto something and they, they need to sit down and work on tying their shoes. And so there's this really natural um, level of, of um, attention and focus and kind of a fury, <laughs> like a, a desire to figure out the world and to master themselves and their own environments. And um, in, in an educational program like Montessori, um, one of the main objectives is to enable the child to do that, to just simply let them follow those needs. And the teacher, importantly, or the parent, needs to observe, not interfere, but observe, and follow the children's cues um, and provide support or scaffolding or assistance when it's needed. But, you know, from my understanding so far, they... The import, one of the main important things is that they don't jump in and take it over or say, let me do that for you, or even celebrate when the child has succeeded because that's a form of interference too. A child might succeed at doing something like tying their shoes or um, assembling a, um, a tower of, of blocks uh, in a particular order or whatever it may be, and and then they'll complete and then start over at the beginning again. They'll do it again, which means that the purpose of the activity wasn't to tie the shoes or get the blocks in the right order. It was, to, in other words, to see the finished product. It was to get there. It was the, the process the itself, process. which was right. And so the child needs to do these processes over and over and over. And the the role of the teacher from the Montessori perspective was really one of um, respect and honoring the child's um, needs and the and the child's ability, not underestimating the child's ability to get there. It might take ten thousand repetitions. It might take the better part of a year, you know, for for certain skills. But the the Montessori teacher says the child will get there, and I'll I'll be there if to you know at the points at which the child maybe loses momentum or or could use some support, but they don't interfere with the process and then you think about going back to one of the points that you made earlier about child behavior and and disciplinary problems 
And I think the question is, how is it possible that in the context of a program like Montessori, young children can be allowed to basically lead themselves, um, to follow their own uh, needs or passions, and um, not unsupervised, but, you know, really really allowed to to take their own initiative and and not experience severe uh, behavioral problems or consequences how is it possible that we can take a group of young children and allow them to guide themselves and not see major disciplinary problems how does that how is that possible mm-hmm. and i think from the 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 literature that we have available about Montessori, about neuroscience, about child development, suggests sort of points to one possible argument for that being the development of self regulation. When we when the Montessori um, teacher allows and and really requires of the child to find their own way to 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 do things on their own and and get there and and allows the child to um, to develop and practice his abilities. The teacher is allowing that child to develop the skills of self-regulation that are required to, to get there. So the child has to have a sustained period of attention and concentration that's not interrupted by anybody saying good job or someone else taking the material away from their hands or, you know, the child is allow is allowed an uninterrupted time of really focused concentration. And the child is using materials that um, if an error occurs, the child is able to detect it and correct it on on his own or on her own. And um, the child is able to um, monitor himself or herself in order to um, decide to start again at the beginning and proceed through the process again until they've mastered it. And those abilities are really a lot, have a lot to do with that part of the brain, that frontal lobe development and the executive functioning. And it may be um, that in that in some cases in an educational environment or, or a home environment with young children, um, those opportunities are not being fully supported. So if there's a little bit too much interference, if the child is um, not given, you know, a long period of time in, with which to engage in a certain activity and get into that sort of zone of focus and and self monitoring and self correction and um, and allowed the time needed to to get there on their own. Um, it may be that that poses limitations on those self regulation abilities, and if self regulation is not is somehow inhibited or not allowed to fully develop or just not nurtured to the maximum extent possible, we might see behavioral problems and discipline problems. So it's maybe counterintuitive for some people to think that allowing the child to lead himself would would result in a child who's highly focused and and um, has a high degree of self-control and is less at risk for behavioral problems. But with current research coming out on the the brain development, we may find that 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 just is the case and that um, children, that part of the approach that we need to be thinking about with children is 
um, being that support, being that steady foundation, but allowing them to develop themselves with the right guidance um, so that they can develop the maximum level of self-regulation, and that may result in fewer disciplinary problems. Well, um, we have a few minutes, and I, I want to um, I want to run something by you. So mm-hmm. um, people think I'm crazy because mm-hmm. I have said and been saying for a while that I think that um, education reform should be a youth-led movement. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, in large part because of what I've learned about Montessori um, and from Montessori and, uh, you know, from my own children, that their instincts are much sharper than my own. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I have I have these internal conversations <laughs> with myself, and um, it's sometimes hard to discern whether I'm hearing from my instincts or I'm hearing from some essay I've read or some other kind of commercial message that I've received um, or from, you know, my my peers. And, you know, it's hard. There's a lot of noise in there mm-hmm. for me. Um, and I think that the children really can tell us they know best what they mm-hmm. need and we really can follow their lead. So as a as a scientist, <laughs> whose specialty is children's brains. Do you think that I'm crazy? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, I think we, have, we parents this, have our crazy there. moments, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> including little voices in our heads. But um, I, I'm guessing that when you talk about that, that intuitive feeling that you have, that that you look at your own children and you see their potential and you see their power and you see their abilities. And I I think that you are a parent that probably um, looks to your children and doesn't assume that you're going to tell them what direction to go in or um, or that you know best necessarily because you recognize as, you know, in addition to your own um, caring and supportive parenting that, that your children have their own light and that they... Um, when they put their minds to something, they're really highly capable. Um, I don't think if that's if that's the case, I don't think that's a crazy notion. I think that that's an an example of a parent who's really being kind of attuned to her children. And um, and I think uh, when you talk about school reform, education reform being a student led initiative, I think at the very least we we could assume that it would be a kind of cooperative um, endeavor and that, um, you know, when we think about, again, coming back to the to the idea that the brain is constantly changing throughout our lives and, you know, a, a lot of people are familiar with the use it or lose it principle, which is kind of what you do, um, what you do day in and day out strengthens, you know, certain brain networks. And what you don't do um, causes other networks to to go into apathy and and simply just sort of fall out of existence. And um, and our brain becomes tuned up to whatever we develop expertise in. And our children, as they grow, take on more independence, more responsibility in their own lives. They dedicate themselves to activities that they're passionate about, whether they excel at math or sports or music or whatever it may be. And um, I think that 
they do have an incredible potential and power to shape their direction and and to you know to influence the direction of of education in our country if we listen to them and la- allow them to express to us their best potential and it may be time for a little bit of a reevaluation on the the educational system i mean in some in some places in some respects it it's argued that the american education system is um is uh, is failing our children sometimes and um, that's not to say that there isn't value to the education system we have but i don't think there's harm in reevaluating it and um clarifying the aims and allowing students to be a part of that reform and keeping in mind that their brains are developing throughout their lives as they take um control and uh direction and become empowered through their ability to be their best selves <laughs> to develop their strengths i think that empowering experience will take them far and i think it will day in and day out it will continue to shape their brains to be the most kind of effective and responsible um brains they can be so that those children grow up to be really contributing members of our society um if that's along the lines of of what you were thinking <laughs> i don't think it's a crazy notion at all you know i think we i think um i think children have a lot a lot to give and i think um i think we should recognize it well, I thank you. Dr. Jessica Phillips Silver is a cognitive scientist, a musician, an artist, an author, and a mommy to a two year old. Uh, Jessica, you've got an event coming up, is that right, at Bloom Bars in DC? That's right. We have a workshop series at Bloom Bars called Baby Brains The Science of Music, Body and Mind. <laughs> when is the when is it? When is the first one? The first workshop is um, April 20th, Saturday at 3 p.m., and the following workshops will be the third Saturday of each month um, through August. Great. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us, Jessica. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Allison. You are now officially certified know-it-alls on children's brains. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook and read my blog at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Remember that we will have a community discussion this Saturday, April 13th, at 3 o'clock p.m. at the ARC, 1901 Mississippi Avenue Southeast in Washington, D.C., in the Recital Hall, and we'll be talking about LGBT rights and schools. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.